instead of using the laser, we changed the screen so that is there a point I was right there. Yeah. And it's so the people online will see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I can do. Yeah. I think this is probably the, so. Some you have to touch it a little bit to get there. We go, and then he appears. I've been leaving it. kind of in the middle.
Hello, everybody, and welcome back for our afternoon session. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Holland. He completed his BA in biology from John Hopkins University, his master's in plant breeding and plant genetics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his PhD in crop sciences from North Carolina State University. He was an assistant professor in the Department of Agronomy at Iowa State University, and he was working on oat breeding and genetics. He then moved to the USDA ARS in Raleigh, North Carolina to work as a research geneticist in maize, and he has a faculty appointment in the Department of Crop Sciences at NCSU. So let's all welcome Dr. Holland. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is a great symposium, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, great organization by the students. Thanks for doing this. Um, what I want to talk about today is um, looking at traits of differing levels of complexity in maize and trying to combine genetics with breeding. And you know, I'll show you our limited success in this area. Um, but anyway, so to start with, I can get my little arrow. There it is. Okay, on this side, I'm showing you a picture of a maize ear segregating for a number of uh, what we would call Mendelian uh, uh, mutants. So things like sugary and these different uh, kernel color mutations. Every mutation that causes a variant you can see on this ear has been identified, has been cloned, sequenced. The pathways by which these things work, their epistatic interactions, have all been um, sorted out in really exquisite detail. So this is, you know, uh, 80 or 100 years of maize genetics. Really uh, amazing things have been done. Um, on the other side of the slide here, this, this is a series of histograms uh, from 25 different biparental populations showing the distribution of uh, plant height within each of these populations. That, actually the mean plant height. And you can see what we've got in every single one of these populations is something approximating a normal distribution, kind of a bell curve thing, where you have some plants are taller than others, um, but there's not a discrete clustering into uh, you know, tall versus short. It's just this continuous distribution, both across and within the families. Um, so um, what we're trying to do is, you know, can we do this kind of elegant level genetics on traits that are complex like this and have these quantitative distributions? Uh, or how close can we push the, the genetic analysis of these things? So let me just start with the, you know, some typical kind of strategies we use to identify the actual genes or the variants underlying quantitative traits and the sort of the classic one. I'm sure everybody knows about this. I'll go through it quickly, but just to set you up, you know, QTL mapping in biparental families has been well established and, um, and it's straightforward and easy to do, and this is why people like doing it. So, you know, if you think about one pair of homologous chromosomes uh, and you have two parents, and I'll paint their um, chromosome pairs different colors to indicate the different um, haplotypes there of the parents. My arrow is coming and going. I don't know, I'm not controlling it, but anyway. So you would cross these things, your F1 would be heterozygous across this whole uh, chromosomal region, and then, you know, self that thing, you generate uh, some F2s that are, you know, you have these combinations, everything starts segregating, and then you self things down and you try to get some sort of fixed set of recombinant inbred lines that represent essentially mosaics of the original haplotypes or chromosomes that you started with. Um, so th these are relatively easy 
to create. I mean, there's some work um, in the selfing and advancing and things like that, but it's not that bad. Um, they're easy to distribute. Once you increase your seed, you can send it out to your friends and colleagues and everybody can phenotype the same set. That has a lot of advantages. The QTL mapping methods are well developed. There's nice software that we can use. Um, and <clears throat> the question then becomes, um, how useful is this sort of approach for breeding? And it is useful when, the, when you can identify uh, a, a small number, one or a small number of QTL, at which each QTL uh, really has a big impact on the phenotype or explains a lot of the trait variation. And there's lots of good examples of this in wheat and rice and soybean. Um, there are not many good examples of that in maize. Um, instead, in maize, typically what almost all the traits of some interest to breeders are uh, appear to be polygenically controlled, really complex traits. So for these highly quantitative traits, then the reality is you want to do QTL mapping, but the, the issue is, is there are many, many QTL, and each of those QTL have small effects. And when that's the case, if you do a biparental QTL mapping type study, um, we know that you're going to miss most of the QTL. You'll, you'll not detect them. The ones you do declare as significant QTL, you're going to overestimate their effects. That's the Beavis effect. And here's a really nice example. This is not my work. This is from the Chris Schoon and, and um, uh, Albert Melkinger's group in Germany. But what they did was they had a, a population of 976 uh, maize top cross hybrids. This is actually the data come from Pioneer. So these are good data. It's a really big population, and it was tested in 19 environments. So it was a really ideal population. We're saying, okay, what happens if you have a huge population <clears throat> and you can map QTL? You know, are we going to really identify all the QTL? And what happens when you don't have that huge population? So what they could do is they could take subsets of this very large population, map the QTL, uh, and essentially do like a cross-validation study for the things they didn't include in the QTL mapping part, ask the question, how much of the QTLs they mapped in the test set, how much of the variation in the, in the um, sorry, in how much of the QTL uh, that were mapped in the training set will predict variation in the test set <clears throat> that was held out. So the, this graph here in the middle is showing um, the results of this. There we go. The, the white bar here is the percent of the genetic variation that is explained by the QTL model in that training data set. So that's, you know, I used to publish these papers. That's the percent of variation we claimed we were explaining with the QTL model. The black bar is how much of the variation is actually explained when you go to an independent cross-validation study. And it's always much, much less. And in some ways, when you look at this thing, as the subset of the, of the sample you're mapping on gets very low, downward go down to 122, you think, actually you think you're explaining 100% of the variation in the small training set, but the actual variation you're explaining is really, really small. So this is very scary. Um, and actually, so you could think, okay, well I can increase the LOD threshold. The problem is I'm being too, too um, slack, you know, I'm being too liberal on allowing things to be QTL so I can increase the LOD threshold, that's the little graph on the right. You have the same problem there. I mean, basically, the difference there is you, even in your training set, you think you're not explaining anything because you're not. So the, the issue here is that the QTL models for the highly polygenic traits haven't been really useful for breeding because the traits are really polygenic. Um, and <clears throat> as you get into smaller and smaller population sizes, you're QTL models are worse and worse, and they basically have essentially no predictive power for breeding. And on top of this, there's another issue, which is like this is all done in one biparental cross. What happens when you go to a different biparental cross? And well, I'll show you in a minute, and you probably can guess, you're going to get different QTL. 
especially in these polygenic traits. Okay, so you could do all this work, even if you did it on 976 or 1,000 or whatever lines, even then, that model you build for QTL mapping is probably predictive only within that family. So that's bad news. Okay, so, um, you know, we thought, okay, one thing we could at least do is to try to get a handle on how much variability is there in, in the QTL segregating in different families. So um, this idea really comes from Ed Buckler's group and Mike McMullen did a lot of work on this from Missouri and um, I helped, as they say. So um, <clears throat> th this is the nested association mapping population and, and the idea here is, well, this is just showing like a, a phylogeny of the, a bunch of maize inbred lines. Uh, from all over the world, and they ran some, this is back in the days of running 89 SSR loci, and, but that was like the best data for that time. And you can see there's a really, there's a big spread. The diversity in maize is really incredible. There's huge nucleotide variation. Um, and, and so the idea is here to, to go sample around the, uh, the phylogeny. So we're, we're maximizing the variation present in the sample of the founders of this population. So. First, this, this parent B73 was selected as the common reference founder line. There's a couple reasons for that, one of which is it's the sequenced reference line. So that's good to have that sequence uh, information. And the other thing is it's well adapted. It's widely adapted um, in temperate regions. So some of these things we're crossing to are very tropical, very unadapted. But if you make progenies that are 50% B73 with them, they'll actually grow and flower <clears throat> and produce seed. Okay. So now the idea is the same thing I showed you for biparental crossing, but now we have, instead of just two parents, we have a set of 25 pairs of parents. In this case, one parent is always B73, so I painted it as like a black uh, chromosome pair, and each you can think of these other um, parents as having some other kind of haplotypes or combinations of alleles in that chromosomal region. So when you make the cross, you get 25 F1s, that all have 50% of this B73 founder, and then we self these things down. Tried to develop 200 lines out of each of these crosses. So now we have a set of approaching 5,000 lines representing these 25 families. And now we can ask questions like, what happens if you map QTL in, you know, in this population and compared to the QTL mapped in that population? Or we can do things like joint population analysis. <clears throat> so the, the slides I'll show you here are from the, the, the analysis when you put all the data together and you you put it in the model, you just say there's a family effect, and then you estimate the effect of markers within families, QTL within families. And you can, you have a, uh, this is a plot of LOD scores across the genome, something like a Manhattan plot, but this is back in the linkage days. And you can see the LOD scores are really, really high. That's because we have 25 families and we have a, you know, there's a lot of data. But even at pretty stringent thresholds, you can declare something like 40 QTL for flowering time. Here's this, though, is bringing us back into the, the terrifying world of polygenic traits. This is flowering time, which is like a simple trait for maize. But even for a simple trait for maize, the distribution of allele effects is heavily skewed towards zero. <laughs> okay, so most of these alleles have a very, very small effect on flowering time. The biggest single allele effect on flowering time here is 36 hours. Okay, so most of these things are below, or 12 hours and below which is, so now you're thinking, wait a second, how often were you guys measuring flowering time? I was in the field, uh, we actually had to split the field, it was so big, so it was alternating um, every other day, taking data on a particular plot. 
So the reason, though, you can estimate the effect of something like 12 hours is, again, it's just your, your this is a polygenic trait, and if you accumulate the enough of these positive alleles, even if they're small, you put a, you stack enough of them together, you can actually make a pretty big difference in flowering time. So you can take the model built on the progenies and ask, do we predict back the parent flowering times? So the parent flowering times range from 65 to 90 days, and actually that model fits really well. It's a really high R squared. So <clears throat> at the point when um, this was published, I mean, things look really like, wow, you know, we really can nail things with this QTL model. Looks really good. <clears throat> but here's the one I want to show you about the complexity of the, of the Q QTL mapping stuff. And what, what I'm showing here is um, along the bottom, uh, or along the whatever, the, kind of the columns of this thing are chromosomes. So here I have chromosome 1, chromosome 2, chromosome 3. And on the rows, I have each of these individual mapping families. And down at the bottom is the joint analysis. And what we did was we just took a random sample of 80% of the progeny, something like 160 lines, and we mapped QTL in it. And then we took another sample of 80% of the progenies within each family, and we mapped QTL in that. And then we did that over and over again. And what we tracked was how often do you declare that I have a significant QTL at a particular position? So that's what these little bars are. And the bars that are blue, kind of the dark blue, that means they were picked up in at least 50% of the resamples of that family. And so, I mean, the first thing you see is even within a family, the resampling variation is pretty big. <clears throat> you get a lot of these things that are well below 50%. So they show up in maybe 10 of 100 resamples, but they don't show up in the other 90. So the question is, are they real? Are they really just small effect? And this is the problem with the QTL mapping. It's hard to know. They might be real, and we just have low power, so we only pick them up in a small percentage of the time. But if you also, the other thing you should look at is compare going down the columns here. You're looking at the same position being tested in different families. And you can see, well, here's a good example here on chromosome 2. You've got some QTL kind of lining up more or less in the same position. <clears throat> this guy out on chromosome 10. This is a gene I'll show you later. We actually cloned this thing. This is our really big effect. That's our massive, massive effect allele. It shows up in four, maybe five populations. It's very strong in the joint analysis, but it's actually limited to a relatively few populations. So there's tremendous variability from family to family. And this is like, again, this brings home the message that the, the QTL mapping approach, if you're in a polygenic trait, is going to have limited utility because the, the predictive power of those models are not going to do very well from population to population. Um, I'll just throw a little tidbit in there. Turns out that if you do ensembling-based modeling, which is basically you, you do predictions from each of these little subsets of data, and then you just average them, those are actually pretty good predictions. And this suggests that really it's an issue of power that you're getting things, you know, in only 10 out of 100 resamples. But if you take that information and then you just start averaging, averaging, averaging with the resamples, um, you can actually get a pretty decent prediction. Okay. So that's the QTL mapping thing. So in some ways, it's like we actually have very high power, particularly on the joint analysis. But there's, there's a lot of complexity underlying it, too. Um, but what we shifted to next was saying, OK, and that's also linkage-based. So you may have one way to explain a lot of this variation um, from family to family is that you have, um, when you pick up a QTL, it could be that you know, you've got something linked to it. And, you know, other small effect things linked to that QTL that are sometimes there in some families and sometimes 
not there, or sometimes the allele, uh, the linkage um, disequilibrium phases are shifting. <clears throat> so we could shift to doing what a, a genome-wide association study in NAM, and the way this works is that uh, the founders have been, I guess you call it resequenced, and what I mean is a very high high coverage, and this data was used to make the maze HapMap2, um, and in that HapMap, because the marker density is so high, we have 27 million uh, variants relative to B73, segregating in this population. So we have a huge number of variants that we can look at. And the other thing is we have a good linkage map because we have low density marker coverage on the progenies, but you can essentially just impute or project that um, high uh, depth founder information onto these progenies and use that information to now ask the question, similar to the QTL mapping question, but it's a little different now because now we're, we're asking um, not does a region due to linkage have some effect, but does a, a particular SNP variant, which is biallelic, does it have a, an effect that's consistent across the families? This is obviously a lot cheaper than doing high density sequencing in the progeny. So this is actually a fairly efficient thing. So this should give us the high resolution because the, 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 the linkage disequilibrium now is a function of two things. You have the within family linkage, which is actually fairly extensive because you've only had two effective meioses in building these lines. But you trace back to the founders, and in maize, the, when you look at diverse maize lines, the linkage disequilibrium breaks down very quickly. So among those founders, there's actually fairly low LD to start with, and then we get two more meioses in the development of these lines. Um, so the, we can get fairly high-resolution genome-wide association tests doing this. And this sometimes works. So I do want to show you some cases where this sort of approach, we went from a pure forward genetics, from a, here's a trait, we don't know the underlying biology at all, and we actually get down to some under, you know, the genes controlling the trait. So here's um, a flowering time uh, QTL analysis and GWAS kind of superimposed on each other. So <clears throat> this is the 10 chromosomes of maize, they're in two columns of, of these little blocks, where you have a green box that's a QTL, and the darker green the box is, the bigger the effect is on the trait. And here's our, uh, our large effect QTL down here on chromosome 10. I can get arrow to show up. Okay, so um, it turned out that we had identified this thing within the maize uh, NAM population. John Dobley also just happened to notice that he had some Teosinte introgression lines that were segregating in this region, and they had a really big effect on flowering time. So Laura Shannon and, and um, John Dobley's lab basically did high resolution uh, fine mapping in this region and got it down to uh, variants that had to be either in the promoter or the first exon of this gene, which is ZMCCT, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a homologue of GHD7 from rice, which is already known to affect flowering time. So that was a case where we got the thing down by physical mapping, um, not solely through NAM, but NAM plus some other additional effort, you can get it down to the gene. Um, and then there was also some GWAS and diversity panels. There was the homology information. Um, there was also John did expression analyses. And actually later in another paper, another group totally independently, uh, well, I assume they read our paper and said, we want to prove this gene. And they actually did transgenic complementation. So we know we got the right gene. So it works. Uh, of course, that, again, that's our biggest effect, flowering time QTL. We haven't really knocked all the other ones out. But let me switch to another trait. This is southern leaf blight, which is a, a quantitative type disease resistance. So 
there's not uh, an immunity. We don't have like major resistance genes for this thing. What we have is a gradient from things that look almost immune over here and to, you know, things that get pretty highly diseased. Okay, so we basically grew the NAM populations out in multiple environments, inoculated them, scored them multiple times. Uh, that was a lot of work. And we mapped the QTL, uh, and then we, again, projected the HapMap SNPs. And so this is a, this is a GWAS. This is a Manhattan plot. It looks very sparse. I told you we had like 27 million things we could test on. The reason this is sparse is because, again, we use this resampling trick where we take 80% of the data and we try to see if we get a significant GWAS hit. And then we only show on this plot things that, that appeared um, uh, in a, at, at some very stringent, significant threshold, at least one of the 100 samples. And so the higher up they are on these graphs, then the more samples they appeared in when you, when you resample. Okay, and um, if you look at the things we've had, now some of them don't have annotations, but a lot of them, we were lucky, a lot of these guys did have annotations, and some of them were quite interesting, like this guy here is a caffeyl-CoA O-methyltransferase. Um, this looked like something that there might be some plausible reason this could be involved in disease resistance. So. Um, now, the next slide is all work of a colleague, Peter Balancurdi, and his postdoc, Chin Yang. But they're at, basically, my job is like, we do a bunch of field experiments, do a bunch of analysis, and I hand a, you know, a list of p-values over to my colleague, and I say, I hope you can do something with this. And um, they have. What they've done is they've tried to functionally validate these things, and here's this one gene. They've actually done this on a number of them. But here's one where they could go to the uniform mu stocks in maize. So the uniform mu stocks is everything is a standard genetic background, but they released the mu transposons to jump around through the, the genome and they land in various places. So there's a database and you can say, I have a, I have a gene in this region of the genome that I want to know what happens if you have a transposon insertion and they can send you all the stocks they have that have the insertion there. You have to do a little cleaning up, but um, that was done. And here you can show that there were these two stocks and they both had an insertion in the three prime untranslated region. But both of them, if you grew them in the field and compared them to the background parent, W22, which is the normal type, they both had higher levels of resistance compared to that background parent. And you can see it here on the little picture. And um, if you look at the expression of the gene that's in this thing, this um, row here, it looks like, if anything, the expression's gone up. And this can actually happen sometimes. You get a transposable element that lands near a gene and actually increases expression. So that was a little funny, but it looks like by increasing the expression of this gene, you can actually see the, the change. Again, it's quantitative. It's not like on on-off thing, but you can, you can notice the change caused by that gene. So it looks like sometimes these things really work. You can go, again, this is also pure forward genetics because, again, if you are dealing with a disease resistance that's quantitative, we don't really know what the mechanisms for that are. So we kind of have to do forward genetics, find the genes, and then maybe we can understand the mechanisms. Okay, so those are a couple success stories. Let me tell you about the, all the other stuff. Um, more often than not, you know, this is, it doesn't work like you hope. One thing that happens, and we're going to kind of move into this, is that if, when we do these GWAS scans, and I'll, I'll show you this, and you probably know anyway, but you've, you fit a, uh, an effect for the background polygenic variants. And often what you see is that you can fit that background polygenic model and pretty much your genetic variation is entirely or very nearly entirely accounted for by that background. And um, one thing that 
suggest is that you've got a really polygenic trait. So your ability to pick out some signal above and beyond that is going to be very limited. So yeah, you do this thing and like, where's my gene? There's no gene. Um, so there's also some sensitivity to the to the inputs, like which marker set you're running. We did this is one of these things where we had a new we had a new marker data set that was better than the last one. So we ran an analysis and it was like, wow, you know the results don't necessarily line up very well. So we have a little paper on that showing like what are the some of the causes of this. But I think the bottom line cause is that there are. If it's polygenic, there's lots of genes that have small effects. So you can fit a model if you have a, only a finite amount of data, which is what we always deal with. You can fit lots of different models with different sets of SNPs that can account for more or less the same variations. That's a little scary. And then there's the unpublished wreckage where we've tried to like find map things and, and you know, just you know, it, this is the uh, Ferrari that Ed Buckler built me and gave me the keys, and then I, I destroyed it. So it's kind of sad sometimes. Uh, and the thing in the in in maze. So in maze, we've sort of got into this and thought, oh, you know, LD breaks down very fast. We we're not going to worry about LD anymore. You just, you you get your association and you're done. Particularly in NAM, and I actually I said that I said, oh, in NAM, the LD breaks down very fast uh, among those founders. But it turns out that particularly in NAM, it's a sampling deal. You have 25 founders. It's true. The mean LD breaks down very fast, but you can you get outliers from that distribution, and it, all it takes is an outlier. And we we've picked up signals where we're clearly like a megabase away from the causal variant. So, you know, you got to be a little careful. You got to really check your local LD structures and things like that. Okay, so that's NAM. NAM works great. Um, it's a lot of work. It's much easier for people to just do association analysis and diversity panels, and the reason is there. You can go to something like uh, the PI collection or a, a breeder's set of materials and just get some lines and grow them out. So that's another good approach. Um, you sample more alleles um, than doing something like biparental QTL mapping for sure. The resolution in terms of how close you are to a, a, the association is to the true variant depends on whatever the LD is and that you just have to check. Um, and it, that varies, of course, from species to species, and even within maize, it depends on what kind of maize germplasm you're looking at and where you are in the genome. Um, but you don't have to spend a whole lot of effort developing new lines. But the the kind of the price you pay for this is the population structure, which is, can be a real headache. Um, this is a graph here from the Cinta Romes paper from uh, Ed's group, where they um, looked at this is just like the I think it's the first two principal components of a bunch of marker data on the maize inbreds from the USDA PI collection. And you see very clear clustering, but it's not like necessarily discrete. There's also all this sort of stuff that's kind of in the middle and gradient type relationships. So you have these very complex kind of interrelationships that might be hard to account for in the association analysis. The other thing you find is you have lots and lots and lots of rare alleles. Okay? So Rare alleles are rare, but there's lots of them, <laughs> okay? And uh, we don't really have very good power to really estimate the effect of those rare alleles because they just don't happen often enough for us to, to um, kind of tag them with a, an effect. So if you have rare alleles that have large effects, we may not be able to even pick those things up. If you have rare alleles with really small effects, they, we can just throw them in the polygenic background and not worry about it. But that's kind of a, that's still an issue. We're not quite sure what the kind of average effect of rare alleles is because the, the frequency of the allele affects the statistical power and the estimation accuracy. 
And then you have the issue, so this is this uh, PI collection. You know, we've grown this in many environments, but there's an issue of adaptation. You have things that are very uh, tropical adapted. They won't flower if you grow them in Iowa or even in, in North Carolina. They're really, really late. So if you want to do some kind of seed trait phenotyping, you could be in trouble because the thing might not produce seed. Um, but when you do this, uh, you know, the, the, that population structure issue, the, typically the, the way you handle it is in the sort of the statistical analysis end of things. So in the NAM population, it's relatively straightforward. The family structure is known. We can fit it, family effects as a fixed effect. That actually takes care of a lot of issues. But if you get into these diversity panels, like I said, it's really you have all this like all intermingled stuff. You have layers of relationships, and it's very hard to untangle. So the most effective method is to not try to explicitly disentangle what the, what the exact uh, nature of the relationships are, but just to estimate them in terms of pairwise genetic relationships or similarity among the lines. Um, and then you can include a random polygenic background term, and that just models the covariance structure. And what, so what you're doing when you're doing the association test is you're saying, okay, that random part of the model that depends on the similarities, that's picking up the polygenic variance, and then I'm scanning after accounting for that and asking, are there individual SNPs that account for you know, some substantial fraction of the variation after accounting for the polygenic stuff? Okay, <clears throat> so the way this works, and actually Jesse already had a kind of a similar slide. We'll just go through it again, though. It all is based on uh, the phenotypic similarity between individuals, which is a function of how many alleles they share. If, it's, if the trait's really polygenic, it doesn't matter what alleles you share, it's just what's the proportion. Okay, so if you have identical twins, Right? Genetically, they're identical, and phenotypically, those things are going to, they're not going to be exactly identical, but they're going to be very similar. And as you get to things that are not quite so closely related, so if you go to full sibs, you can see there's more within family variation, but this family is probably going to look quite distinct from some other full sib family. And then if you get into first cousins, you know, maybe there's a relationship, but it, it starts getting hard to tell. So what the markers can do, though, is they can take us beyond these sort of pedigree-based estimates which also don't account for the Mendelian sampling, as Jesse already mentioned. Um, the problem with those things is that they're, they're based on expectations, so that they say every pair of full sib has exactly the same similarity, when you know that's not actually true. Okay, any specific pair varies around that average, and we can estimate that uh, deviation from the average using the genome-wide markers. And here's just a little data, just to show you that you know, on the average, the pedigree-based things are really correct, but there's a lot of variation around them. So I looked at one of the uh, families in this NAM population and just asked the question, if you look at each line that we derived randomly, what's the proportion of alleles that came from B73? And the mean is exactly on 50%, 50.1%. It's perfect. But look at the distribution of that thing. It's, it's, um, it ranges from like 30% up to a little bit above 70%. Okay. so. We can use markers, we can just ask the question, something like, it's not exactly this, but it's something like, how many alleles are shared between any pair of individuals? And then you can build a matrix like this. So this would be a matrix of 279 maize inbreds, and the color coding is just a way to replace the number of the, of the estimate of the relationship with the color. So if you're dark red, you're basically identical. So on the diagonal, you're comparing a line to itself, so it's, you know, you're basically looking at identical lines. As you get down into the green, the white and the green stuff, you're looking at pairs of individuals that tend to be unrelated. And you can see little blocks of like structure in here where there's groups that are 
Um, this is probably a set of lines in alphabetical order that probably all came from the same program. And so you can actually see those groupings. The point I want to make here is like make it really clear that what the connection is between GWAS, genome-wide association study, and genomic selection, okay, which some people call genome-wide selection, which is GWS. So, <laughs> so you get GWAS, you got GWS, and they're different, but there's a connection. And the connection is this background part of the model. When you do the GWAS, like I said, you're modeling here, you're trying to detect the effect of a particular SNP in this model. That's what you're testing. But you've got this background effect in there. That background effect is modeling the uh, genetic background of those lines. And the variance, covariance of that background is simply, it's, it's perfectly proportional to this matrix of the, of the allele sharing that you put in there. Okay? And what we're trying to do is say, we want to get rid of anything, anything that causes these two individuals to be similar due to like the background genetics. We want to get rid of that. That's not what we're interested in GWAS. What we're interested in GWAS is like two full sieves that should be really similar but are quite different. That's what you're looking for in GWAS. So that's a, a SNP with a, or a variant with a big effect. Genomic prediction, what it's trying to do is actually the model, I mean at the, the base, the simple models you can run, um, it's basically exactly the same model, but you forget about the individual effects of any particular SNPs. All we care about is the background effect, and actually it's the U in this model. That's the genetic background. We're just trying to predict that, that value based on the allele sharing. So the models are very similar, but actually the objectives of them are very, very different, and which one you want to use depends on what you're trying to do. Okay, so if the genomic relationship matrix matches closely the phenotypic similarity matrix, then your phenotypes can be reliably predicted from these dense markers. So in other words, you take, here's, here's, a, here's a, a measure of allele sharing similarity. You can think of it, it doesn't exactly work this way, but it's similar. You could think of, what if we took yield or something and we measured how similar each pair of lines is for yield? That's going to give us another matrix. And you're going to ask a question, how close are those two matrices to each other? kind of a correlation between those two matrices. And if that correlation is very high, in other words, this thing predicts the trait sharing matrix, then this is the idea behind genomic prediction, where you could knock out some rows and columns of this thing from the phenotype thing. You don't have any data on them. But if there's a close connection between the allele sharing and the trait sharing, then you can sort of fill those in using the prediction models, and that'll work very well. And, and of course, as Jesse's shown, this works really well when the training population is closely related to the predicted population, and I'm not a commercial corn breeder. My understanding of how this can be used then is that you basically will, can build a genomic selection model for each uh, cross, each full SID family separately. I think there's effort to kind of use information across families, but this thing actually works. You just take data from this full SID family, and you that's your training set, you build the model, and then you have a bunch of seed in the cold room that's been chipped, but it's never been grown, and you run the markers, and you pick out, let's say, the top 10% or whatever, the top 5% based on your prediction model. And so again, you've effectively really blown up the size of the population you can apply selection to. Okay, so I won't get into this, it requires a huge investment, um, but it really depends on having a narrow genetic space and long linkage to sequilarium, the way people typically use it for this to be effective. So what happens when you go to diverse germplasm? You know, a lot of what we're trying to do is look at all this diversity in maize and try to understand it genetically. And genomic selection tends to fail when you 
train in one population and you try to apply it for the exact same reason that QTL mapping in one population doesn't really tell you what's going on with the QTL in another population. Here, again, this is not my data. These are data from CIMIT and again analyzed by the, the German group. And what they did was they, they had a panel, it's kind of a diversity panel of, of important lines from CIMIT's breeding programs, which were actually sort of like eight sub-programs. And they built a model based on that. They had a matrix that looked just like this. And they said, okay, now we have some new F2 populations, <clears throat> excuse me, and they said, okay, let's use that training model from that diversity set and apply it within these F2 populations. And the, on the side there, you can see the correlation between the predicted and actual yields when they put these things on testers and grew them out. And the, I mean, if you just average over populations, it's actually negative. So that was really, really terrible. So marker-based predictions are really not useful if the training sets are not closely related to prediction sets. And this is like, what does close mean? We don't, you know, this has to get worked out empirically kind of for every situation. This is a really tricky issue. And it turns out that in this case, diversity, we always want a lot of diversity when we do these genome-wide association studies. But um, again, that's kind of the opposite in genomic selection. You want your training set to kind of have a more restricted uh, slice of the diversity. And then your, the thing you're applying it to has to be uh, really related to that slice of the diversity. So the, the genomic selection models are good for prediction for, and usually that catches most of the genetic variation within these narrow populations. What we've been thinking about GWAS as being useful for is maybe we can get prediction within and across populations for that very small subset of genes that have a bigger effect than the polygenic background. And this kind of would tie in with the idea that you can go into diversity sets and sort of find a few things that are really interesting and move them into the uh, elite material and you could do some kind of combination of uh, genomic selection for the polygenic background and, and then also direct selection for these alleles. So um, this, is, this is a study that a student of mine, Young Dan, did. Uh, we're starting to try to get at this question of how well is this going to work. And basically what we're showing here is we took NAM data and Again, we do the same thing. We take 80% of the data to build a training set, and then we run a, a basically a GWAS-type model. We have a polygenic background term, and we rescan with all the markers. Um, and each time we pull out one of these training sets, we build a model, and we estimate the effect of the SNPs at some p-value threshold. And then what we do is we try to integrate the polygenic background model with the uh, effects of individual SNPs. And we put those two things together and say, how well do they predict the test population? And compare that to just fitting the background model, which is what we do now. And so we did, this is a simulation study where we looked at a, what, an oligogenic simulation. So we had 10 loci with 3% variance each. So they're not huge effects, but they're not tiny. They're somewhere in between. And what you can see here is you get a, the GBLUP model. This is the background model here on the left. I mean, it's okay, but it's not great. And if you start adding in SNPs at these various p-value thresholds, you actually get a fairly substantial boost in accuracy. Okay, looks great, right? Well, here's what happens if you have a really polygenic model. So now we simulated 100 loci, each with having 0.3% of the variance and plus a, a background. And basically what's happening here is that the polygenic model, which is over here, does, you know, you don't need to add anything to it because it's already so polygenic to begin with. In fact, if you add in at low p-value thresholds, you'll make, you do much worse in and then he just took some real data from NAM and he showed that actually this more or less makes sense for southern leaf blight and gray leaf spot. We actually get a, a small boost. It's about 
which is not huge, but it kind of works by pulling out the GWAS signals and adding them into the models. For plant height, which we know is highly, highly, highly polygenic, there's no advantage at all to doing a GWAS scan. Just use the background model. And you, know, you can sort of tell that when you looked at the genome-wide scans that we weren't picking up a lot of things. So the bottom line is, this is my many years of effort to tell you that complex traits are complex. So uh, I'm, I'm very stupid and slow. So it's now suddenly dawning on me that um, if it's really polygenic traits, maybe you should use a polygenic model, and it works pretty well. So um, we start, still are stuck with this issue, though, that why don't things predict well from one population to another? And that's like a big area of research. Is it just because the allele frequencies are different? Is it epistasis? Is it the LD phases are changing? Um, and on top of this, you know, can, again, can we find good examples of where you could mine out an allele of larger effect and, and add it into these things? That's what we're trying to do. We'll see where we get. And I just want to thank a lot of people who've worked for me. Young Bian is a grad student. He did the simulation, a lot of the data analysis. Um, Baudet, Charlie, Kristen, uh, Chin, they're all postdocs with me and Peter Bellancurdi, obviously Ed Buckler, and Mike McMullen and Sherry Flint-Garcia for uh, the NAM development, and um, Randy Weiser, and Jason Brewer, and lots and lots of other people who helped out. Thanks a lot. Thank you for a nice talk. Uh, I have a question uh, about, you know, uh, is it called QD allele as uh, means defects? So if the, you get a, you know, pandy, you know, QTL, each with very small, you know, effects. So you use, you know, genomic selection or GWAS selection and get a good prediction. The question is if I'm breeders, so if I'm going to select, you know, Pandy, you know, low side. So how that can handle in, you know, look at the combination of the twenty low side that could be yeah. So combination. So how can I handle that? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is as soon as you get to twenty low side, you're you have to be into small effects. You can't have twenty low side each explaining, you know, forty percent of the variation. So some of them, at least some of them, have to be very small. And those are the things that, again, you should just let it drop into the polygenic part. So you only want to pull out like the tip of the iceberg to put into your sort of the fixed part of the model to, to where I'm specifically modeling the allele effect. And it has to be, like you have to be pretty certain that that's a real effect. So you've got to be fairly stringent on what you declare to put into that. So if you get to 20 loci, you've got, you've got too many for that kind of targeted allele sort of mining approach. So you should just let let the smaller ones drop into the polygenic background. You've probably not estimated them correctly if, if, if you've got that many of large effect. Yeah. Very nice. Um, am I on? I can hear you. Okay. Uh, for, the, um, for those traits that are not particularly predictive from your training set where you're just not being able to identify those is it fair to say that the traits that are least readily followed are those traits that involve abiotic or biotic stress relative to traits like development, let's say uh, polygenic traits like height, which in fact 
would in fact, although they're polygenic, be fairly consistent in the contributors? It doesn't even work for height. Yeah, we've, we've tried. So like you can go build a model in one damn family and predict another, and most of the time it just doesn't work. So yeah, it's, I mean, that's the thing, it's only gonna get worse when you get to something like a drought resistance. <laughs> Because there the problem is the underlying, you know, you got to have good phenotype data going into it. So if your phenotype data are compromised in any way, then whatever you do is probably not going to work. Thanks. Given the, given the population that had limited diversity, so if you want to take, would you expect a high genomic predictions if you take into account G by E? Mm, uh, okay, so yeah, so yeah, so we have not explicitly modeled the G by E. On the other hand, when we do the prediction evaluations, we're just looking at the means over the exact same set of environments from the training side. So these should be like, kind of best case scenario situations. So we're not trying to do environment to environment prediction. We're trying to do the mean across environment predictions. And so we've got that in the training set and the test set. So, you know, modeling the G by E, I, I don't think it's gonna help us much in this particular case. I think where that's gonna help you is where you're gonna try to predict into like new environments. And that's really, you know, that's really hard to do as well. Since, since log values can be high just as an anomaly because of a small population size, is, is there enough consistency that some, one could make an, like a normalized log value that takes into account the population? And so instead of using log, we use some other corrected value? Yeah. So a log value is not necessarily going to be high in a smaller population. In fact, you can, if the, if you're, if you model the true effect and you're really on it, the log value will be higher in a large population. The issue with the small population is when you drop the log threshold down to a point where you can detect something, then it's very, you're, what happens is you have a lot of signals throughout the genome just below that line. This is part of that variability we find. And you just move that line a little bit, and what pops up and what's not quite on it, there's a lot of potential fluctuation around in that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the question is, what should you do in a small population? So I would still argue, you know, permutation thresholds are probably good. I mean, if, if your objective is to identify a QTL that you think is going to lead to an underlying gene or it has a big effect and I want to be able to, you know, back cross it into a lot of things, I would be stringent and only pick up the things that are really strong. And then if you do it and there's nothing there, I mean, then you're done. You know, you need to screen some other population. Or, you know, maybe it's just below the threshold, but I would, rather than messing with the statistics, I'd try to get the, you know, re get more data, something like that. 
You know about p-hacking? So I should just say, you heard about p-hacking? This has been in nature. This is a big thing in the medical community. It's called p-hacking. What you do is you keep analyzing data until you get the p-value so that you can publish your paper. And uh, so I, I just want to put on record that I don't recommend doing that. So you, yeah, it's always better to get better data rather than just keep analyzing. I have a question. So what's your suggestion for a breed that has many different different breeding populations, how to use this information to improve the process yeah. of breeding for yield? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that I think is a big question. Maybe Jess here, somebody could have a better answer. Right now, I, I think the, the thing that we know will work is if you can build a model in every population separately, do that. Of course, that requires huge investment. Yeah, you just treat them all separately. And you don't, and basically you throw away your predictions and the next cycle, make a new prediction set. So. The prediction models are just prediction models. Don't get married to them. They're just like whatever, throw them away. They're 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 not, you know, they they their prediction ability is very limited. It's very context dependent. Let's put it that way. And so, if you can build a new model for every situation and every population, then just do that, and then throw them away and and redo it. But to to do that requires you, you know, you have to be able to get lots of marker data very quickly and cheaply. Um, so. You know, obviously industry can do this. Now, the bigger question is, that's crazy, right? Like you're telling me to throw all these models away. Like I spent all this effort on like getting all these data and you're gonna throw it away, you're nuts. So yes, it would be nice to, to understand under what conditions we can combine data. There, are, there appear to be some conditions where you can combine data and get a better prediction. But I, my, I mean, at least I don't understand what kind of the parameters of that situation are that could tell us when we can do it and when we can't. Um, I, think, um, I think the small grains kind of model has been that the, the you know, there's less diversity, LD's longer, the, uh, you know, in, in those cases, maybe the models are gonna apply across more diverse material. And that, that's it, that might be the situation that works there. But in maize, the, it's just like family to family, it's like kind of all falls apart. 